You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1328 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Monday evening, October 17th, in somewhat emergency fashion. We were planning to do a podcast tonight either way, but this is a, an interesting one, to be sure. And the top-line thought here is that DeAndre Hunter and the Hawks have agreed to a four-year contract extension. Not a huge surprise, although I was certainly guessing it was not going to get done, so I am at least mildly surprised by this result. But um, we'll get into all the details and reactions and all that stuff. But the deadline, if you missed this, for rookie-scale extensions across the league, not only for Hunter, but across the league for first-round picks in the 2019 draft, was 6 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, October 17th, which is today as I record this. Now, the deadline passed without any sort of announcement, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski talked about some other guys, and uh, a lot of people, I think, assumed that the Hawks had not found a, do- a deal with DeAndre Hunter. I did not assume that and immediately started making calls. It was uh, conspicuous to me that no one had reported it nationally or that no one that I could get a hold of locally could have uh, a confirmation that there was no deal to be done. I basically spent two hours pestering everyone that I possibly could around this. I am not Woj. I am not Shams. Occasionally, I will break something uh, on the Hawks stuff, usually on the smaller side because I am a basketball nerd. But uh, basically, this is a very weird thing. I talked to a lot of people about this, both national and local, and it was just very strange how radio silent it was. And it truly was radio silence from national reporters to everybody in between, uh, local people on the Hawks, around the Hawks, etc. No one was talking, and now we know why, because two full hours after the deadline passed, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that Hunter agreed to that four-year deal worth $95 million. As I record this quickly after the uh, reporting has been done, it's been confirmed by me and others at this point. I don't have the full breakdown just yet of dollar for dollar and all of the incentives and all that stuff, but Jeff Schultz of The Athletic actually just reported before I started recording this podcast that the deal has $5 million in incentives. So basically a 490 is the assumed structure plus $5 million in incentives. That's kind of in line, at least the incentive part, with other deals that have been done in this cycle for rookies, rookie scale guys, I should say. And uh, yeah, this basically, if that is the case at 490, you could start up about $20, $21 million in year one with 8% raises and go up from there. And uh, the details will be interesting as they come out in the coming days. I'll touch on that stuff as we know, as we know it for sure in the, in the future. But broadly speaking, this is not a shock to me. I think, um, and I said this on Twitter, if there, if there was a deal to be done, I really thought it was going to be between like 90 and $105 million over four years, only because of what, we, what I've been hearing behind the scenes and also what's been reported out there. I know Jake Fisher reported that the Hawks were about $20 million or so away from where Hunter was. As of a few weeks ago, I heard even this week they were still uh, pretty big in terms of the split. And that's kind of why I thought that the Hawks probably wouldn't get this done. And from what I can gather, I'm not, again, reporting this stone cold, but from what I can gather, the $95 million number and especially the $90 million pre-incentive number is considerably lower than what Hunter was asking for prior to this. So I'm not saying that he was the only one that budged. I'm sure that 
the Hawks made their offer a little bit richer to get this done in the closing days and hours. But it does seem like um, there was probably some urgency to get this deal done because I, I know for um, pretty stone cold, at least from the reporting that I've been a, a party to behind the scenes, that Hunter's side was asking for nine figures plus, which means $100 million or more in this contract. They ended up settling for 95 and uh, 90 in base salary, according to the report from Jeff Schultz. So um, obviously that's what a deal is. And I, I, I tweeted this yesterday uh, when somebody asked me and I, I sent it to the to public, public platform. Basically, deadlines spur action. And generally, uh, if a deal does not get done a lot earlier than this, they go down to the wire. Now, this one went crazy to the wire. But you know, Kevin Herter's deal was at the last minute a year ago. This is not a, it's not out of the ordinary for it to go all the way down to the end. And both sides have the uh, urgency there to get something done. But this is a deal that is not a bargain necessarily. Now that's sort of I'll, I'll transition now into my actual analysis of the deal and sort of give, stop giving you the background. But um, I don't think it's bad. I don't. Um, it's not a bargain in my mind. But as I said a lot in previous episodes, um, this is a deal that has a lot of nuance to it. So on the player side. For DeAndre Hunter, um, you could see why him and his agent and his representatives wanted a lot of money because he's a former top five pick. He's a two-way forward that everybody wants, that 6'8 player. And if he really fills into that and has a good year this year, he could have been in line for easily at a nine figures, you know, $30 million a year kind of deal because everybody wants that skill set that he brings to the table. Um, that's the simple version of on that side. On the Hawks side, the skepticism would be that Hunter has not put it together just yet. You know, his second season, he really started to seem like he was going to break out early in that year. He was really having a fantastic season, ends up getting hurt, playing 23 games, and uh, kind of was sidetracked by that, came back late in the playoffs and all that. Then last year, he was considerably worse on a per-game, per-minute basis. And uh, in the playoffs, there were some nice signs against Miami, a couple of big games offensively in that series. But uh, on the Hawks' side, basically a deal like this in, in extensions, I know I say this all the time, Takes the, takes the risk off of the player and puts it on the team. And basically that trade-off is supposed to be for the team to get a team-friendly contract in, in exchange for taking all the risk and having the player rewarded with life-changing money. And that definitely happened here. Um, I will say, on the team side, there is still upside here. Now, while this is not a screaming bargain for the Hawks in any way, shape, or form, I will say the cap is going up. And I think that if Hunter had had a positive season this year, not even like a huge, you know, full-on breakout, but like a solid 70-game, very good, you know, starter-level performance this year, he would have gotten more than this next summer. I can almost guarantee that. I'm very, very confident that he would have gotten more than this. Now, if he struggles, the Hawks might have some buyer's remorse. That's that's potentially possible. If, he's, if he has the same year he had last year, he's not going to maybe get this same level of contract a year from now. So, there's always a little bit of give and take there. That is the case. But if you're the Hawks, you're banking on DeAndre Hunter for the second time. Obviously, they did that the first time around. They traded a lot to get him in the draft. They went up to get him. Um, what I thought was an overpay in terms of just actual transactions, not a huge deal, but they clearly wanted him. That was Travis Schlenk's guy to put next to Trey Young, kind of have that two-way forward base alongside Cam Reddish, who's no longer here, obviously. But um, anyway, they've been in on Hunter the entire time. They've always been higher on Hunter than the consensus. The Hawks have been. They've kind of made him borderline untradeable. Not fully untradeable, but certainly he's been one of the guys they've been trying to protect only Trey has been the full untradeable uh, at this point but they've wanted to they've wanted to hang on to Hunter this entire time and this is one of the reasons why they still really really believe in him and they think I'm sure that if he has the season in year four that he could have this is a deal that's going to look like a good deal now again there is some downside because if he struggles or if he gets hurt or if he's banged up or just what he was last year um, he's not been worth this money to this point now that's a sliding scale of course, um, last year, I think he was probably worth something like the mid-level, something like that, which is a lot less money than this. I will say, though, as, I, as I've been sort of indicating the last few weeks on the show and beyond, the salary cap going up 
people have to sort of recalibrate the numbers in their heads on these deals. Uh, I've made the point recently that deals like John Collins' deal and deals like Clay Capella's deal look really good now compared to where the market is going to be going. John Collins having three plus years left on that deal and ending at basically just starter money at the end is a really good value. Capella, same thing, a little bit shorter. Now, if Hunter... All he has to do basically to return value on this deal is be a starting as it's being a starting small forward. That's all it is. You don't have to have, I know the people are going to get sort of get excited about the $95 million. Um, I think he'll benefit from this not being a hundred million dollars. Just that, that sticker price kind of tag kind of switches expectations. We saw it with Collins. There's, there was a portion of the fan base that, as soon as Collins signed a deal for more than $100 million, that number was suddenly thrown around a lot in the discussions. People kind of changed their expectations about John Collins, whereas that doesn't really make, make any difference. At this at this point in time also, by the end of this deal, Hunter might be making like just above the mid-level. Like it's one of those deals where like the mid-level is going to be $17 million a year, $18 million a year. He'll be higher than that. Obviously, by the end, he'll be making like 25 ish in year four. And uh, we'll have the full detail, details on that in the near future. But yeah, this is one of those deals that uh, it might strike you as high. And I said, basically, my line of the sand as, as a team would have been something in the 480, 484 range, something like that. This is probably higher than I would have gone. Now, the incentives definitely help on that. But I do think, and you know, I will not hesitate to tell you if I think it's a bad deal. This is a fine deal. I think this is the deal that it was always going to have to be if a deal got done. This is the Hawks showing the confidence in Hunter. This is Hunter taking a little bit of a discount from what they were asking for. And that's usually what those deals actually look like. You know, a year ago, Kevin Herter, they paid a real price for him, but I thought it was a pretty good value contract. It was sort of market value, decent enough. Got a little bit of a, a, little bit of a concession on that deal. This is sort of similar to that, whereas it's a year later, the cap's going to be up a little bit more. Obviously, Hunter has higher upside than Herter does. He's more entrenched in the situation. Hawks are already invested in him and all that stuff. If you look at like the deals that have been handed out in the rookie scale extensions, the top three picks, Zion, Ja, and uh, RJ Barrett all have big deals over $100 million. Darius Carlin got the max along with the, along with Zion and Ja. Jordan Poole got like four for 130-ish, 125-ish base salary plus incentives. Tyler Hero got four for 110 plus incentives. RJ Barrett, again, got four for like 95 plus incentives. It was four for 107. Kevin Porter Jr. got a, got a very strange deal today. Um, Keldon Johnson was the one that I sort of comped Hunter to early in the process, knowing that Hunter was going to get more if a deal got done. But those guys are very similar in that Keldon's probably been better to this point, actually, than Hunter. But Hunter has the higher upside and the higher pedigree. So you kind of knew it'd be more than that. Plus he's going off a higher draft pick salary and sort of the qualifying offer, all that stuff. So it's kind of in the middle. He's landing between RJ Barrett and Keldon Johnson. Not exactly in the middle of those two things, but RJ has proven more. Keldon's been a pretty good player, but it's definitely more of a role player. You know, Hunter's certainly a role player as well, but this is the, again, the sweet spot where if a deal was going to happen, that was going to be it. I'm sure the Hawks did not want to go to $100 million. I'm sure that Hunter's people did not want to go below where they were either, but this is where they settled. And 490 is, uh, I think, pretty appropriate. I think you're going to probably hear that's a little bit much for him. And listen, I understand because, like I said, he's not proven it in the same way. And if it was 492 three years ago before the cap spike was, was sort of play, factored in here, this would have been an overpay. But when you consider by the end of the contract, years three and year four of this deal are going to be in a new cap environment where the cap's going to be very much higher than it is now. It makes it more palatable, even though, again, this is a situation, a tailor-made spot where the risk is going from the player and Hunter to the team. And they know it. That That's kind of the calculation here. And Hunter already had, obviously, some life-changing money when he was drafted in the top five. Those guys make, make, make more money. But this is a big deal. This is Hunter you know, tripling his lifetime earnings. It's a big thing for him. It's awesome to have a guy rewarded like that. By all, by all accounts, the is an awesome guy. He's always been good to me. So uh, you know, no, nothing negative there at all. And again, I think the Hawks can get value here 
if Hunter is the guy that they believe. He does not have to be a star. I want to say that one more time. He does not have to be any different than what the Hawks have already thought about him in, in, in the first place. Be a high-level role player, have two-way appeal, make your jump shots, all that fun stuff. Just be a very strong – I sort of hesitate to use comps, but just be a starting starting small forward. It could play a little bit at the four, and that's perfectly fine. He doesn't have to suddenly be a breakout guy that averages 20 a game to justify this deal. I want to be very clear about that, and that's uh, that's important. It's, it's really just staying healthy and producing at the level that I think he is definitely capable of producing. So all that, you know, we can get into more of this later on when we have more details about the incentives and all that stuff. Um, I will say – the Hawks have some big money now um, allotted. Now, that does not bother me. It's not my money. But given the way the Hawks have avoided the tax in the wrestler era, and especially this season, that was very obviously the Hawks uh, did some money shedding moves this year that were not, not necessarily very well, very, very well veiled. And particularly the Milharkless dump, even even the Herder trade was, I think, monetary, um, at least on some level. So now for next season, the Hawks have at least $155 million dollars allotted to nine players. I'll have the exact amount when we have the Hunter breakdown in full, but the nine players under contract for the Hawks, not, that's all they have. It's nine guys for next season. It's Hunter, it's Trey, it's Murray, it's Collins, Capella, Okongwu, Griffin, Jalen Johnson, and then Bogey's player option is included in that. So if you, if you pull that off, if, you took, if, if Bogey opted out for some reason, it'd be uh, somewhere in the 137, 138 range. But if you include Bogey, 155 for nine players. These, the projected salary cap is $134 million. So the Hawks would already be 20 million plus into the, sorry, over the cap and nearing the tax with only nine guys on the roster. So there's some questions in the future. Um, also, there was no way, I should, say this, I should say this before, but I'll say it one more time now. There was also no way on the team side to replace Hunter long-term and the Hunter side undoubtedly knew that. There was some opportunity cost there. He was going to have a high cap hold. That's a, there's a lot of nerd stuff I can sort of get into here, but I'll leave alone for now. But I think everybody involved knew the level of commitment to Hunter in part because there is no plan B for the Hawks at the small forward spot. Yes, AJ Griffin can play there a little bit. Maybe Jalen can play there a little bit in the future, but he is their guy at the three. That has been the case for a while. It's definitely the case now. And I think that opportunity cost with the Hawks already kind of being over the cap and not having cap space to go ahead and fill that, um, that was also part of this transaction too. So the tax stuff next year is going to be really hard to avoid. Maybe the Hawks will try to duck under by trading Capella to kind of pay the way for a Kongwu or whatever else, but that's a conversation for the future for sure. But for now, that's all I have on Hunter on this, on this reaction podcast. We're going to have more topics coming on this, on this episode, but yeah, an interesting day for all parties involved. The two hour wait was certainly a curveball along the way, but congrats to DeAndre Hunter on his, uh, on his, honestly life-changing payday and the Hawks are hoping beyond hope that he uh, just takes a step forward, stays healthy and that uh, can return some value on that contract. And it's one of those deals that's not egregious on either side, which is uh, kind of probably the way it should be along the way. So we'll have more on this in the future, but stay tuned and what well, as sort of we get more details and obviously I'm live reacting. So I don't have the full command just yet, but uh, that's the nuts and bolts of it at this point. All right. We have more to come on this podcast, the latest news and notes from the Hawks, uh, some, some transactional stuff, some mailbag questions, some shooting guard talk later on the show but first a word from our sponsors on the podcast today today's show is brought to you by rocket money and i have way too many jobs at this point and part of that is keeping up with everything that i actually have to manage 
That includes subscriptions for stuff that I need to read and listen to. And sometimes it can be really difficult. I've actually forgotten to cancel stuff on time on more than a few occasions. It's not a problem for me anymore, though, because Rocket Money is the best. And I love using Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows you the subscriptions that you have in one place and cancels anything that you don't actually want to keep or that you don't need. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions that you don't even know you are paying for at this point. You might even find out you've been double charged for a subscription, which is not a lot of fun to be paying extra money for something that you're not even using necessarily. And to cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel on Rocket Money takes care of the rest get rid of all the unnecessary clutter and subscriptions that you have with rocket money today go to rocketmoney.com slash locked on seriously save up to hundreds of dollars per year one more time that is rocketmoney.com slash locked on all right with the hunter news now covered in full some other news and notes as well as uh, mailbag questions and some big picture stuff shooting guard preview uh, at least of sorts later on in this podcast but first uh, stuff from Sunday and Monday. Kevin Chenard of Hawks.com talked to Clint Capella and shared a quote on the thumb issue that's kept him out of the preseason finale. He said via Capella that it's getting better and then he keeps working on it. It's stable. It's strong. I'll, I'll keep working on it every day. End quote from Capella. We'll see about the Wednesday listing, probably on Tuesday evening sometime, but it seems like it's going to be all right for Capella, even though he missed that um, finale in Birmingham with the thumb injury that forced him to leave the previous game in Cleveland a little bit early. Nate McMillan also finally acknowledged that McDonavich was not going to be able to play on Wednesday. That's been a theme on this podcast the last couple of weeks that I was very skeptical of that. It was finally sort of announced in that form, not been formally ruled out in terms of the injury report at this stage, but it's been pretty clear for a little while now he was not on track to play. He's not practicing yet, not doing movement stuff. He is shooting and stuff like that, but we'll touch on this a little bit later, but that's sort of the newsy part of that right now. Also, the Hawks made a transaction over the weekend that got some attention, even though I kind of got ahead of it a little bit with some reporting. Um, the Hawks announced midday on Saturday they were going to be claiming Jared Roden off of waivers, which inspired a round of intrigue from Hawks fans that thought he might be the 15th guy on the roster. People were asking me immediately what was going on there, so I immediately reported, honestly, as soon as the announcement was made, um, that the Hawks were just planning to have him in, the, in College Park and get into the G League. That was always the plan for the Hawks. They, they were going to waive him later in the day, and they went ahead and waived him just a couple of hours later. That was always going to be the plan for Atlanta. Roden was never going to be a guy in the mix to make the team this year. Um, he is a 6'6 wing from Seton Hall that played for the Kings in Summer League and also was in camp with the Blazers in the preseason. I saw him play a bunch in college. He was a four-year guy at Seton Hall. Roden was first-team All-Big East, by the way, as a senior. He was undrafted in 2022 and not really on the radar as like a top 80 guy in the class to really be uh, picked in the draft. He's also 23 years old already, so kind of similar in that aspect to Tyrese Martin, not a guy who was like guaranteed to be drafted. And I think Martin was a better prospect than Roden, but still kind of in that same realm. And uh, it makes some sense for College Park. Obviously, taking shots on 6'6 wings is probably the right tact for most teams. And as of this recording, it does seem like the Hawks are going to kind of roll with what they have, and they have to submit the roster by the end of the end of the day tonight, actually on Monday evening before the actual opener on Wednesday. So we'll go over the rotation and stuff like that on the final show before the opener. But uh, that's sort of the, the transactional part of that. Not a huge surprise that they were bringing somebody for College Park, but that was the sort of the nuts and bolts. Basically, he was waived on an Exhibit 10 contract, so you could pick him up, pick him up like that, then wave him, and then also just kind of stash him to College Park in the same way they did with like Tyson Etienne and all those guys. So nothing really to see there beyond uh, just sort of a, a news-breaking thing that was, you know, Hawks pick up a player on waivers, even though it was always targeted for College Park. All right, one mailbag question here, actually, before we turn it over to some shooting guard talk later on in the podcast. It comes from Ferrer, who says, can you talk about the Hawks' draft pick situation after the Murray and Hunter trades? And he uh, wanted to know, basically, if the Hawks can make trades with draft picks, etc. So I'm going to go just kind of year by year real quickly and lay it out what the Hawks still have on their books 
draft wise. Um, obviously, the season's not begun yet, but uh, this is uh, sort of going to inform trades and all that kind of stuff, too. So year by year, uh, the coming draft, which is 2023, of course, the Hawks have their own picks in the first and second round. So pretty standard thing there. They have some extra second round compensation coming as well. They have a top 45 protected pick from the Pelicans that may convey, you know, the Pelicans have to make the playoffs for that, for that pick to come. That might happen, but uh, not a huge impact. Obviously, I can't be, I can't be above 46 in the draft, so not a, not a swing there. They have another second round pick coming from a swap that's very complicated that I won't I won't try to explain now, involving the Sixers and the Hornets and the Nets. So the Hawks basically project to either have two seconds or maybe three seconds in this coming draft, plus their own first round pick. So a nice little cupboard for this particular draft. Uh, 2024, the Hawks have their own first again, and they likely will have their own second as well in that draft. They have to send their own second to Portland, but only if it lands between 56 and 60. So unless the Hawks are a top five team, which could happen, obviously, um, they, no one's going to care if they actually send that pick out, if they're that good. So uh, they'll probably have their own pick in that draft as well, second round. They also could have a first rounder in 2024 from the Kings via the Herder trade. Um, that's what we talked about a lot at the time. That first year, the Kings have to make the playoffs, um, which is not, I would say, likely, um, probably not impossible by any means. It's still a year from now. They have some young talent on that team, so we'll circle that in the future. They also have the OKC second-round pick from the Dennis Schroeder deal. It could be a nice pick. Um, that's unprotected second-rounder, so it could be you know, somewhere in the 30s if the Thunder are still struggling two years from now. And they could have Miami second-round pick as well coming in. It's sort of a tiny window, not really worthy of, explain, uh, of explaining on this podcast today, but they have a full draft as well in 2024 and keep in mind the Murray stuff does not start until 2025. Now, 2025, the first round pick is gone. It is to San Antonio. It is unprotected. That's not coming back, etc. The second round pick, the Hawks have 2025 is also gone to OKC unless the Hawks are one of the 10 worst teams in the league, then they keep it, but that's not going to be likely. If that, obviously you don't want that to happen if you're a Hawks fan. They could have that Kings pick as well. If it does not convey in 24, it becomes top 12 protected in 25. That is more likely than the previous year, but we'll see. Also, they have the OKC second round pick unprotected again to complete that shooter deal. It, for those of you who might not remember this, that, that pick became two seconds um, after uh, sort of being a lottery protected first round pick for a while. Um, 2026, they have their first round pick is swapped with the Spurs unprotected. So they'll either have their own pick or the Spurs pick, but they will have a pick in that draft. They cannot, they could not, they were not allowed to trade that pick unprotected. They had, it had to be a swap, which is why that's there now. They'll, actually, they'll also have their own second in 26 and Golden State's second round pick in 2026. It's probably going to be a bad pick, but you know, we'll see. They also, that's the final season of the Kings pick. If it is not going to be conveyed by that point, it's the last year that it can be a first rounder, a top 10 protected first round pick in 2026. 2027, the Hawks have already sent their first round pick to San Antonio in the Murray trade. So that pick is long gone. They do have two seconds in 2027, their own and the Clippers second round pick. 2028, no changes. They still have their own picks in that draft and nothing else coming in. 2029, they have to send their own second round pick to Oklahoma City. So that's it for now on the obligation part. So basically overall, the only Hawks first round picks the Hawks can trade right now are the following. They're allowed to trade their own pick this year if they want to. Um, they could trade their own pick in 2029, which is seven years from now, I know, but they, that, they're allowed to do that. And then they could do a swap next year in 24. They could do a swap in 2028. But because of the Stepien rule where you have to have a pick, you can't, you can't trade back-to-back -back picks. They have to at least keep a pick in 24 and 28 because of the Murray obligation. So if they trade their own pick this year, it gets a little bit dicey. We'll, play, we'll talk about that later on. They can trade that one. They kind of, I think, intentionally left that pick as one of the ones they did not trade in the Murray deal. So they have flexibility now if they want to buy midseason and kind of go all in. That's their prime 
um, pick to go ahead and do that. They could trade the pick this year. They also could trade guys like Griffin or Johnson if they wanted to sort of uh, those future facing assets. But that's sort of the one bullet to trade right now that has pretty significant value, of course. And then in the future, they could do that swap and then they could trade 2029. But obviously, uh, for the most part, the Hawks are down in draft capital after making the Murray trade. Not a huge surprise there. When you owe two unprotected picks plus a swap, that makes your life more difficult a little bit in the future. Now, second round pick-wise, the Hawks actually have more coming in than going out. That's a positive. And that Kings pick does help, provided it's, it's a first-round pick. As I discussed on that podcast, um, reacting to the Herder trade, that pick does not have any guarantee of being a first-round pick. It could it could easily be a second-round pick. Most teams in the league, you would assume, would be able to send that pick to you, but the Kings have a record of being so bad for so long that it's not a guarantee that pick comes. Now, if it becomes second-round picks, that trade becomes a lot less appetizing, but the Hawks do get something from the deal eventually. So that's all. That's a lot of draft, uh, sort of uh, draft pick talk for this podcast in October. But uh, that was an interesting question. I think it was sort of worth taking stock on now. The Hawks do have some picks going out, of course. They have some picks coming in. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they're not in a disaster situation. It's not like the Timberwolves where they basically traded everything they possibly could have traded for Gobert. The Hawks did give up a lot for Murray, but they do have some stuff coming back in the Kings deal. And they have the ability to trade this year's pick and 2029 plus some swap stuff if they want to and uh, try to improve the team in the short term. All right. Last thing before we get to the shooting guards, um, 538 projection came out over the weekend and uh, it's the highest projection that I have seen for the Hawks anywhere in the mainstream. Obviously Hawks fans are higher than this. I'm not saying otherwise in some respects, but this is a public facing projection system. That's not like have any bias in it. That's just their numbers. And they have the Hawks with 51 wins tied for number two in the East with Miami ahead of Philadelphia. That's the one that's kind of shocking in some ways um, ahead of Toronto. And then two games ahead of Milwaukee, another one that's kind of surprising, although that one I, I think is at least attributable because Middleton is still hurt for Milwaukee. I'm sure that's built into the, to the model with the bucks, Brooklyn at 45 wins, six behind the Hawks and then Cleveland at 44 wins. I know Cavs fans were upset about that. I, I still think the Hawks are better than the Cavs, but that's an interesting one. Anyway, there's some weirdness in the 538 projections. Like they have Charlotte too high, um, very obviously too high in my mind. They have the Jazz with 39 wins. That's a crazy high number behind. They're actually ahead of the uh, ahead of the Lakers. Now, I'll say this now just as a, as a bold thing. I'm not like going to defend 538 is what it is. But systems like 538 do not understand, nor could they understand, which teams are going to tank. Like the Jazz, for instance, have a lot of players on the roster that are still pretty good. The problem is they're going to not try to win this year. They're going to sell off more pieces in the future, and the, they can't possibly know that. So that's part of that. The Lakers thing is very easy to understand if you kind of just take a step back and don't panic about it. Their number three through ten players are just not good. Like last year, they were a disaster. When you throw that in with LeBron and AD having injury issues the last couple of years, like that's got to be a pretty easy explanation for why that is. Now, if LeBron and AD stay healthy all year, they'll win more games than 530 projects almost certainly. But anyway, Charlotte one is weird. All that stuff. I'm not going to go crazy about this. It's one projection system, but it is high on the Hawks, and that's pretty encouraging. Someone remind, reminded me also, it's the exact same projection the Hawks had last year for 538, 51 and 31. Obviously, they, they didn't quite get there last year, but we will see, and uh, that's where we are at this stage. All right, one more break to hear from our sponsors. We'll come back with some shooting guard talk at the end of the podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Bet Online, and football is ongoing in a big way in the sports world. And Bet Online is the number one source for all the football stuff that you're looking for in the pro and college ranks, as well as the information and the needs you might have. Find all the latest developments, the game matchups, the news, and the podcast that Bet Online you're looking for that is going to be crucial for the weekend slate coming up in both college and pro. 
Bet online is also the continuous source of wagering information you're looking for. That includes live betting and esports and live scores. Bet online is also the fastest and easiest way to consume all the sports you have interest in this season. And on this show, we talk about the NBA. It's our main subject, of course. And plenty of future bets are still out there before the opener on Tuesday and Wednesday between season win totals, conference odds, division odds, title odds, individual award odds, and much more. Beyond the NBA, Bet online has odds and lines on college sports and baseball, MMA, boxing, golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, soccer, entertainment bets, and much more. Head about online right now on your mobile device or your computer to learn more about all the trends and the action in the sports world. But online, where the game starts. All right, and I still might do this, actually. Uh, if you've been following the podcast over the summer, I've been talking to Zach Hood, my friend for Peachtree Hoops, about positional previews, and it's honestly entirely my fault that my schedule's been a little bit off the rails. We've not done that podcast yet. It still could happen, but I'm not going to bank on it. It's not Zach's fault, so don't blame Zach. It's mine. But I wanted to go ahead and just as in case we can't find that time in the next couple of days to record that podcast, I wanted to give you some notes on the shooting guard position, which is basically the one we've not done, covered yet. By the way, again, if you missed those, I did positional breakdowns with, with Zach on the point guards and the small forwards and, and power forwards and the centers. I also did player review stuff with Glenn Willis early in the pocket, earlier in the summer. It's a great time if you are not a longtime listener to catch up on old podcasts. Honestly, a lot of the stuff from the summer is still very relevant at this point. Talked to Tower Jones and Andrew Kelly. Robbie Callen's been on the podcast recently. Um, wide-ranging stuff from Glenn and Kevin Chenard, etc. That's all uh, relevant for the most part. So catch up on that stuff now and subscribe to the podcast. But Anyway, just in case, I want to dive in on the shooting guards now. We'll start with DeJounte Murray. Um, I expect him to be very good this season. Obviously, he is more of a point guard in the traditional sense, but on this team, he is playing the two more than the one. Um, anytime he plays with Trey, I am kind of listing Murray as the two, as I think the team is as well. He has more size. He'll be defending more twos, et cetera. Obviously, he'll be playing point guard on the second unit, so not a huge surprise there. And my stance is well-documented, but I firmly believe the Hawks should be staggering Trey and DeJounte, which I assume they're going to do. They did that in the preseason, which I definitely thought was the right decision, and we'll see that more in the future. But I've discussed Murray forever now, it seems like, all summer long. Not a ton new to say, but if just some general thoughts here. Murray and Trey might have some kinks to work out offensively playing together. Um, I'm a little bit higher on the pairing than some. I know there are some, I think, justified skeptics on that pairing in terms of like how it all perfectly works together on offense. Um, I'm not worried about it. Is it absolutely perfect? No. You would hope that Murray would be a better sort of standstill shooter. You would hope Trey would be a little bit more of an off-ball mover, I guess, in, in certain terms. Obviously, he, he can do that. But I think it's a little bit overblown. I'm not too worried about it overall. I do think that, um, you know, defensively, it's obviously a boost for the Hawks with DeJounte. I think he might be a little bit just a little bit overrated defensively by some, because I think you're not expecting him to be like an all defense guy, which he was early in his career, by the way. But now that he's an offensive player, for the most part, guys who become number ones or number twos on offense kind of decline a little bit defensively. It's kind of the give and take you have to have there. But when he's dialed in, he's really good. He's active. He's got great hands. He's got good size, good athlete. He can defend point guards and obviously a little bit bigger guys on the wing as well. It makes DeAndre Hunter's life easier because last year they had to have Hunter kind of guard point guards a lot even Kevin Herter on some point guards last year this time around if it's a high-end point guard it's gonna be Murray on them and then you could kind of have Hunter as your wing stopper um I guess almost essentially so that makes a lot of sense you can also hide Trey a little bit easier across the board when you have DeJounte on your roster defensively that's a very very big positive there on the glass he's a huge help he's an excellent rebounder for a point guard obviously he's playing more two now but even at the two he's a really good rebounder as well he has at least a 20 percent defensive rebound rate in four straight seasons that's very good for a player of his size um that's a huge help for the hawks as well the hope would be that hunter gets better there but last year he was very bad on the glass a kongwu for a center is pretty bad on the glass i think collins is pretty good at the four capella's elite at the five but they don't have a ton of rebounding on this roster so having murray and maybe even even jalen johnson should help a little bit there as well i think the hawks have a chance to be a good rebounding team this year but when you throw in capella 
Capella and Murray and Jalen. And um, even with Trey and, and, and DeAndre Hunter on the roster kind of being weaknesses of the positions on the glass, I think they're uh, just having Murray there really helps quite a bit. Um, he's also a very good passer. He's not Trey as a passer, but like who is who is Trey basically? Um, but he averaged like nine assists a game last year for the Spurs. Like that's impressive. That's going to go down as he's running less pick and rolls and kind of having the ball in his hands less than he did last year in San Antonio. But he's a really good passer, particularly at the two. Like he's one of the probably the five best passers in the league at that position. I think that um, it's a great luxury to have a second unit as well when he's running that second unit. That's been uh, one of the big headline things for me and those paying close attention to this acquisition is that it's not only about how he plays with Trey, but just the boost they're going to get when Trey leaves the floor and having a guy in Murray who has been a number one option for a team, having that guy run your second unit is a huge luxury and that really helps the Hawks compared to previous seasons. Three-point wise, like Murray's not a great shooter. We kind of know that, but he is a really good mid-range shooter. Like really, really, really good the last couple of years. Pull-ups, all that stuff. He's got the whole arsenal there. Um, and for me, is like one of the kind of players that's like actually that's a good shot for. Um, most guys, you don't love mid-rangers, but for elite guys who can create their own shot, like Murray, it does make a lot of sense to go ahead and do that. Again, second unit offense is a huge boost. That's one of the big things for me. Um, the first unit offense, I don't know if it's going to be like that much better than last year or if any better because they were so good. The Hawks were so good last year with Trey plus shooting and a dive man that like it's not a given the Hawks are even as good offensively with that first unit, even with Murray on the roster. I know it sounds kind of funny, but because of the spacing concerns and all that stuff, but I do believe that A, the first unit will still be very good, even with Murray on, on the roster with Trey, and B is probably the bigger thing. The second unit will be a lot better on offense. Um, the concern would be, and we'll get into this in a second, with Bogdanovich, um, a second unit that has Trey, that has sorry, that has DeJounte and Bogdanovich on the floor is projects to be an awesome second unit offensively. You take Bogey off the floor, a little bit less shooting. You're, if you're playing DeJounte with Aaron Holiday and Justin Holiday, not, not, a, lot of, not a lot of juice there offensively. Jalen Johnson's like kind of an iffy shooter. He's okay. Um, Akongwu, is a really good player, but not, not, a, not, a, not a lot of spacing there. So we'll see about bogey, but at minimum having Murray there to run your offense and have huge usage. I expect him to have like 30 plus percent usage on the second unit. And he should, that's the kind of, that's one of the reasons why you're, why you're going to go out and get him in that transaction. So I think overall, you know, I could do a half hour on Murray, but he's a top 35 or 40 player in the league. He's a really good player. He's going to help them a lot in a lot of different ways. The ceiling, the ceiling of the offense is going to be contingent on how Trey and Murray fit together, but the floor raises a lot, even on defense and also in the second unit offense with Murray. That helps a lot overall. He's the best player Trey's ever played with, in my mind. Um, I went through the sort of rankings of like the last 20 years of Hawks. But in the Trey Young era, I think Murray is the best player he's played with, um, just narrowly ahead of guys like Collins and Capella. But I think that Murray has uh, – he was made, made an all-star team, et cetera, last season. He's really, really good and uh, at minimum the best you know perimeter creator that Trey's ever played with. So that'll be a lot of fun, and uh, I'm really high on that pairing overall. Um, elsewhere at shooting guard, we'll spend some time on Bogdanovich now. Um, one of the reasons I was trying to hold shooting guards till the very end was because of Bogey's injury status. We have a little bit more on this. I talked about this a little bit earlier on the podcast, but we don't have a timeline on Bogey at this stage, other than he's not doing full practice. He's going to miss the opener. Um, I won't speculate too much on timeline until we know more, but I'm expecting him to be out for Friday and maybe even beyond that as well. We'll see. Um, the short version in terms of like what he's actually going to be is like they're going to miss him in a big way. Um, he's not the same guy defensively that he was a couple years ago. Part of that is the, the burst uh, is a little bit gone because of the knee stuff. And uh, I think last year we kind of saw that, but he is a vital piece of this team on offense. He is their best shooter on the, on the wing. Obviously Trey is, you know, up there for best shooter as well, but, and maybe AJ Griffin gets there in, in the future, but Bogey is their most dynamic wing shooter on the roster by a lot. He famously uh, shot incredibly well two years ago and well last year. And really, if you look at it, I've said this a lot, but people kind of don't understand this nationally necessarily. Um, the Hawks, when they've been playing their best in the second halves of the last two seasons, it's been a lot of it has been bogey 
really firing on all cylinders. Famously, two years ago, even last year, when he's right, they are a different team and they are pretty much unguardable. Obviously, Trey is the bigger reason for that, but Bogey is a, a dynamic and aggressive offensive player. He can be he can handle the ball for you a little bit as well. He's got to be guarded like a fire drill for the opposition. He is aggressive. He brings some edge and leadership to the team. Uh, it's a huge loss to have him not on the roster right now and be able to play. I think Murray helps to offset some of that, which is very helpful, but Herter not being there, uh, not a whole lot of shooting on the wing right now outside of Griffin. Hunter's an okay shooter, but not, not quite the same like gravity as a guy like Bogey or a guy like Herter. So uh, we've talked about Aaron Holly and Justin Holiday on other, on other podcasts. Those guys project to have more minutes in Bogey's absence, maybe some Griffin as well mixed in there. But um, defensively, I think Bogey being out actually is going to help the Hawks. Um, more Justin Holiday, even more Aaron Holiday, but more just, Justin in particular is going to help them. He's a much better defender than Bogey is at this point. But offensively, it's a real loss, even with Murray on the roster. And um, also in those units where Trey's by himself without DeJounte or DeJounte's without him, by himself without Trey, having Bogey not be there is a big deal because they don't have the creation equity on the perimeter. Obviously, it helps to have Trey here DeJounte, so don't get me wrong. But when they're not playing together, the Hawks will suddenly have a little bit less juice on offense because Bogey, as a secondary creator and as a shooter, won't be there. So we'll cover this more in the future as we know like when Bogey's going to come back. But it's a real loss. I think it'll probably be underplayed nationally what it means to have Bogey on the, on the bench and not being able to be active and playing. But we will see how he looks when he comes back. And I'm sure they'll take it slowly, too. Like, no training camp for Bogey. He's going to have to ramp up a little bit. He'll probably have restrictions and minutes when he comes back, and we'll cover all of that as it actually happens. Um, other than that, the guys we've not touched on in previews yet are Tyrese Martin and Vic Krejci. Not a whole lot to say on those guys. Martin, I think, was probably going to be a little bit behind Edgy Griffin now because of the shooting. Um, we saw that a little bit late in the preseason. But I think Martin is probably more pro-ready than a lot of rookies. He's, he's an older guy. But I think that he won't play a ton this year, barring injuries. Um, I think he actually might be on a two-way contract, a la what Skylar Mays was, if not for the tax issues. You know, just having, long story short, having a rookie under contract books actually helps your tax issues. He, he makes less than the minimum. So that's, that, that's kind of why that is the case. But I think that he'll play sparingly, but he could not kill them when he's out there. And then Krejci is just a flyer, honestly. It's a good team-friendly contract on that deal to get under the tax they made with, with Moharkless sending out. Um, he has a pretty intriguing offensive skill set. I'll be honest about that. But I think he is probably the guys of the guys on real contracts, like not the two ways, not Forrest or Culver. I think Krejci will play the least this year, if I had to guess, on the current roster, just because of like how they treated him in the preseason, how the guys ahead of him you know, are basically the other rookies in Griffin and Martin, I think the Hawks might lean on those guys a little bit more. Um, even Kaminsky, like they're going to have to play Kaminsky at some point when Capella misses a game or Kong misses a game, etc. They don't have a ton of depth, and I think that's part of the reason. So I think we'll probably see uh, not a ton of Krejci, but there you go on that. Okay, before we get out of here on today's podcast, um, a couple of uh, quick, quick hitters here on the way out. The Hawks now apparently looking for a jersey sponsor. Um, Sportico reported Monday that the Hawks have hired a firm to find them a new uh, uniform sponsor starting in the 2023-24 season. It's been share care since the Hawks actually got their first sponsorship for the jerseys. They'll be on their jerseys this year by all accounts. But I know Hawks fans have been kind of been hoping for since even back then a more local sponsor. Also maybe a bigger name sponsor like your Home Depot, Coke, Delta types like a little bit more uh, aesthetically pleasing maybe than share care. But so we'll see. Not a huge deal, but that's uh, sort of came across today as I'm recording this podcast. And then the last one is kind of a sadder one. Um, Dikembe Mutombo, the NBA announced on Saturday that Dikembe is undergoing treatment for a brain tumor. He is in Atlanta and in great spirits, according to the release from the NBA. They, they've asked for privacy for the family, focus on treatment and care for Mutombo. The Hawks released a statement as well from Tony Ressler, the principal owner of the Hawks. I'll read it to you now. 
He says the Hawks organization extends best wishes to Dikemba Matumbo for a full recovery as he begins treatment for a, for a brain tumor. We know he will approach this challenge with the same determination and grit that have made him a legend on and off the court. Our thoughts, prayers, and support are with Dikembe, Rose, and their entire family. And as Tony said there, Matumbo is actually like a legitimate Hawks legend. I actually make that, I, I use the Hawks legend thing kind of funnily most of the time. He actually is appropriate for that. Has his number retired by the Hawks. He didn't play that long for Atlanta, like only, like only four and a half seasons, but, um, has been around the team even since then. Like I think he's got at least at least one home in Atlanta. Um, he's number three in franchise history in block shots while only playing four and a half seasons, was an all-star multiple times here. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, he sort of has one of those careers where you can't like identify him by one franchise, but you could argue he was at his best with the Hawks. So all that said, like we obviously wish um, the best for Dikembe and his uh, condition, and hopefully that all improves in the future. But you know, thoughts and prayers for him and his family at this stage. And I'll do it for today's podcast. So we covered a lot of ground on today's show. We'll have much more between now and the opener on Wednesday. So stay tuned. I'm trying to like pack the house a little bit on the podcast in advance of the opener on Wednesday. But the Hawks will play the Rockets at home on Wednesday. The Rockets uh, not going to be great this year, probably. So a, uh, a solid spot for the Hawks to maybe get a win and get off, get off to a fast start this season. But we'll have more on that later on in the week. Please do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform that you'd like to listen to podcasts, whether it be on the video side with YouTube or on audio stuff with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, all those places have, have the podcast. If not, let us know. We'll try to find out what's going on there. Follow the show on Twitter as well at Lots on Hawks. Follow me on Twitter at BT Roland. We'll see you later on in the week.